0: From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor, and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up on today's show, Apple, Venmo, Zelle, who does peer-to-peer payments better? We speak to Flux, who have recently integrated with Starling on their marketplace, and Monzo lets its customers decide on pricing for ATM fees abroad. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you live from the rather awesome 11FS office in WeWork London. My name is Simon Taylor and I'm joined by the one and only 11FS colleague of mine, David Breer. Hi David, how are you doing? Yeah, really well. Well, I
1: say really well, I'm still feeling kind of rubbish. Like pneumonia definitely sort of takes it out of you for yeah, months, I'm going to have to say. But like vertical is beyond me. I know. It's a, it's a challenge. Predominantly caffeine-related, I, I believe. But uh, work wise, this week was was pretty fun. We had some, you know, still kind of ramping up to build a bank, which is cool. So, like, recruitment phase going pretty heavy right now, which is uh, most of my time. I feel like a recruiter right now, which, mm. is, which is interesting. Me and you had a really interesting conversation with Google, which was great. Actually, it wasn't Google was it it was, it was the alphabet um, and that was that was really fun so there was some really interesting things to do there um i had the pleasure today of going to the rise event that barclays were putting on uh, so i managed to be one of the judges of the fintech startup award so mm-hmm. i know it was rather rather nice so i got all judgy which if anybody's listened before pretty good at being judgy i have to say <laughs> so it's like specialized
0: subject if was there anybody's else. name there for you to butcher
1: Pr- pretty much, yeah, <laughs> but mainly startups' names, you know. Like, uh, but uh, but no, that was that was really good fun. So uh, watch the space in uh, maybe I think about six or seven weeks time for the uh, announcement who who won that one. But well, uh,
0: of course, Jason's in Chicago right now doing a speaking gig, keeping swanning that, off. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 people just want to talk to Jason all the time. It's like he's got something to say. It's really irritating. But anyway, um, I've been pretty busy as well. I was speaking at Payments International earlier. There was the Calder Conference from R3 earlier in the week. There was CoinSign summit um, the whole blockchain space has been exploding so on blockchain insider we've been busy and of course next week i'm in cairo doing a couple of bits of work as well but enough about us i mean we can talk about ourselves all day I- i've got to talk about our esteemed guests and today we have friend of the show ft journalist owner the autocrat at top that runs the entire ft of course it is uh kadim Shuba. how are you sir I'm doing very well thanks for having me again every time we just sort of give you
1: a better job title don't we like at some point somebody somewhere is going to say something come
0: like on Fintech Insider you get an invisible promotion It's exactly. <laughs> I, I
1: do worry that one of my bosses will hear and, and think that
2: it's serious it is It is not serious I, I don't tell people that I run the FT seriously
0: <laughs> but of course the blogger for FT Alphaville uh, who you should definitely check out his work I enjoy it thoroughly uh, alongside him we have our semi regular guest Sophie Gibbard Sophie thank you for being back with us of course V for Europe at Fido. How are you?
3: Very excited to be back in London.
0: Yeah, well, it's great to have you. And of course, um, Pete Townsend of Norio Ventures, part time at Levin FS, but also Norio Ventures. How are you doing, sir? I am doing great and very excited to be on the show for the first time. Thank you, Simon. Uh, we're excited to have you. There's so much news to get into this week. Let's get on with it. Okay, David, there's a story in Time Magazine that we just cannot escape. Um, submitted to FinTech Insider News by Fagan. Apple just unleashed its Venmo Killer. Here's what you need to know. What do we need to know, David, about the Venmo Killer? <laughs> Sorry, I, that was weird. I, I guess, yeah,
1: I guess I'm, I'm sort of weirded out by this one slightly, given that I'm surrounded Not just my by. Intro, yeah, like, yeah, like but your intro too, but uh, I'm, you know, I'm pretty much surrounded by Apple goods in my everything in my entire life. But I just care so little about this story, if I'm honest with you. It's really weird. Um, I guess um, Times not a usual source for fintech insider news. I'm going to be honest with you, but um, that I just don't see any real momentum that's going to be built up around Apple's peer to peer capability. I'm sure that'll be quoted to me in infinitum if I'm wrong and it suddenly it massively takes off. But mm. everything that we've seen with Apple Pay is just so underwhelming that I don't think this is anywhere near being a Venmo killer. If I'm honest with you, I don't know, don't know what you guys think. I mean, for
2: example, Apple rolled out a little while ago, various, like, um, whole bunch of different, like, things you can do in its messaging.
0: Yeah. Um, iMessage, app,
2: yeah. Uh, so yeah, an, an iMessage, which was meant to sort of, uh, copy some of the stuff you saw on Snapchat and et cetera, et cetera. And turns out, I mean, people do like using the apps that are actually designed for the fun thing that, like, they're intended to do. And so I, I mean, I kind of agree with you. I mean, I can I can foresee that perhaps yeah I don't won't have to download the app and so on and so forth but you're right Apple Pay has not been you know the huge success that people said it would be um and Apple does a, you know a trillion different things so why wouldn't the other apps that people love continue to be their sort of first go-to uh sort of product
0: Good point, Catton. Pete, do you have yeah, any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would agree. I mean, with,
4: with just on that point, catam with Apple Pay not being extremely successful um, in that I live in Ireland, um, and I went through an experience about a month ago where I left my wallet at home, and the only way that I had to get anything going that day to get from point A to point B was, well, I hadn't yet activated Apple Pay on my iPhone because it wasn't really that available in Ireland. I called my wife. She took a picture of my credit card that I left at home, sent it to me. I set up Apple Pay. Only one of the four retailers that I went to that day was able to complete my purchase for me using Apple Pay. Now, if you think about, is that Ireland? No, I don't think it's Ireland. It's the fact that it's the banks themselves that may not be perhaps quite ready to integrate. So anytime that you have that dependency on your product to be able to scale it and to grow it globally, um, you're going to run into
0: some trouble. You can see where this came from. Um, The In Alipay and uh, WeChat in China, the messaging and payments are joined at the hip. They are the same thing, and we've seen Western technologies try to do the same. But actually, payments in Europe and in the US aren't that bad, aren't that hard to do. Cards kind of work. Whereas in China, most of the middle class didn't have a payment scheme. So maybe are they barking up the wrong tree, Sophie, do you think? or?
3: Well, I think like P2P is clearly something and uh, people are using it. I don't think people are thinking of Apple to do that. I think there are like good options uh, to do that. Some banks are doing it, like a lot of challenger banks, including like uh, things like Revolut. I'm actually using very often uh, Revolut to pay back some uh, some people. But I think people are going actually inside the their banking app uh their financial apps to uh to perform that
0: speaking of banking apps because we saw um there's, there's not a story on our news but uh we'll, we'll come to it later about zelle so we'll, we'll cover that in a little bit which is the banking app service for for peer-to-peer payments in, in the u.s um but whilst we're on the subject of apple I, I just have to talk about this this demo of face id built into the iphone 10 launch did did everybody see this There's like a smug Android alert user just about to go off before you give this one, I'm sure. But uh, go ahead, Simon. Go on. Enjoy your moment. For the first time in history apple did a product demo and on demo day it it, it actually didn't work it was quite uh, it was quite horrific to see and watch and the, and the response from the poor chap who had to demo it was ho 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 so i think he was just trying to plug the product at christmas I, i'm not sure what was going on. but but this this iphone 10 is really odd looking thing they've done away with touch id they haven't thought to put touch id on the back of the phone because they've taken up all of the screen and then they've got this weird thing where they've had to accommodate the camera and the um, the mouthpiece speaker at the top of the phone. So now you've got this really weird screen rendering thing that you need to do. Has Apple lost their imagination, and is, is Venmo and trying to be a Venmo killer just another part of that, or or is there something that they're just hiding, and and there's going to be another wave of Apple innovation coming? I think that I don't.
1: I'd, I'd love to think they're just hiding a bunch of stuff, and it's going to all be a elaborate thousand pound joke that they're going to sort of charge me for for that next phone. But I I, I just sort of fear this is them just you know, the Venmo stuff is them copying somebody else in terms of what they're doing. Everything that seems to be reasonably innovative in their little bubble seems to be kind of copying the find a little Google pixel phone that you have in front of me right now. Um So I, I, I'm just really concerned about Apple if I'm honest with you both in terms of what they're doing as a fan in terms of the stuff that I own
0: and actually I own some shares as well so it might, might I be don't a good worry, time they've to got do enough work. cash and offshore accounts they, yeah. they, they could be alright that's true <laughs> um, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about Venmo because the next story here again submitted to Fintech Insider News by Fagan, was about Venmo offering users a physical debit card now I would encourage you if you're listening to this and you're commuting somewhere and you have internet access to go look for Venmo this physical card that they offer people this story was brought to us by TechCrunch, and Venmo's physical card, well, it's a little bit hideous. I, I don't know about you, it's supposed to be a dough ball, like a pizza dough sort of thing going on, but I, did, did you see anything else in there, him I, th- I,
2: I mean, it's a perfect, it's just a card, it's perfectly fine, it's a card with a picture of some bread dough, I mean... It's- Does it look like bread dough? I don't know, what does it look like to you? I mean, it
1: <laughs> looks like bread dough to me. I, I think it's the most sort of meh card I've really sort of ever seen, if I'm honest with you. I think if, Did if Did you nothing, want like go faster stripes or I, something? I just yes. want, I want something, it's, it's so vanilla. It's just, it just is nothing, isn't it? You know, I'd like, there are some weird- It's definitely not hot coral. No, well that, but that's the, that's the thing. You know, if, if Monzo's teach does nothing, it's, it's actually that, um, well, A, how to say taught instead of teach would probably be a <laughs> starter. Um, but the, the idea that actually these things really do matter in terms of actually getting, you know, virality and in terms of actually people wanting it. So the fact that it's a, just a really nondescript nothing card, just, I'm, you know, very uh, fun, point.
2: Funnily enough, so just funnily enough, um, apparently Monzo recently, uh, they've had their rollout of current accounts t- a tiny bit delayed because Their recent batch of Hot Coral cards were the wrong tone of Hot Coral. And so they had to send them back. That's attention to detail.
1: That's that's some insider knowledge there, (laughs) (laughs) Kadib.
3: Good
0: knowledge, Kadib. Sophie, do you have any thoughts on this one?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Jumping back to uh, to what uh, David was saying, actually, I think it's a great PR opportunity because everybody is talking about it. So, of course, like in the media, but even when you are at the restaurant, I can totally imagine everybody asking you what this card you know like it's what has been happening with the monzo card like what's this card it's amazing it's orange like why not people like when you are actually paying with the card what this card
0: there's no such thing as bad pr we might call this doing the reverse monzo your card is so ugly that people start talking about it it's an interesting (laughs) idea um i'm gonna move us on to that zell story from business insider because um we we talked a little bit about venmo now and venmo of course is the post-to-person payment app so if i'm going to split a bill at a restaurant, or if I'm going to pay some of my friends in the US, I use Venmo's. But Zelle is the bank's alternative to this. Originally started in sort of 2011-12, known as Clear Exchange, an initiative by several banks to have their own peer-to-peer app. We've seen this in a number of countries. Of course, India has Paytm, uh, where the, the banks actually get together and create a bit of something. There's a number of these types of initiatives. Uh, Zelle have launched their own mobile payment apps. So Zelle had launched some time ago, where you could log into your um, bank account. America or or any or Chase or any of the participating banks' uh, apps, and you could use this peer-to-peer capability if that bank supported it within their app at the time. But now they've launched their own discrete app. So you would download the Zelle app, and it pushes you into the bank app of your own. It's, it's kind of a but weird it sounds experience. sounds terrible. Yeah, no, it's a weird experience that they've kind of got kludged together because we have it on 11FS Pulse with videos of it, and we were watching this thing earlier that that Sam recorded for us. and it was, I mean, he was quite delighted about the fact that he had something connected to his bank account in the US which was which was happening more or less real time but it was was, it's definitely not the Venmo experience no I I don't
1: think it's the Venmo experience but actually it's probably the best thing that they have at the moment but i think i think similar to what we've seen in the uk though if you get a bunch of banks together to you know in consortium to create a an experience it's probably not going to be great really you know is this a
0: better thing than they have maybe but is it really everything it could be definitely not innovation by committee um horse by committee creates camel sort of uh metaphors coming to mind but i mean Credit to them, the app seems to be working. The really interesting thing was, will we see press releases about the numbers of users and the payments volume? Because PayPal and Venmo put lots of press releases out about how many people are using it, uh, the volumes they have, the activity. We don't really see that coming from the bank peer-to-peer apps very often. But
1: uh, but I think the thing is though, Venmo isn't a. I don't think Venmo is really a financial services brand. Like they've they've kind of positioned similar to Monzo. Social network. Yeah. Well, they've they've positioned it like a lifestyle thing. You know. It's actually, it's about believing in the thing that they're doing and kind of engaging in that space rather than necessarily, uh, I just want to pay my friends for a thing, you know. So in that context, then they've actually got a hell of a branding experience to to really try and copy, which I'm not really sure they'll be able to do. Um, I mean,
2: I, I confess I haven't. Uh, come across Zelle in the wild but the way that you've just described yeah. it to Zelle me in the wild. <laughs> um, just sort of makes me wish that I, n- I never will have to use this app. I mean it just sounds really cumbersome.
0: Yeah I mean we, we've had a similar experience with, with Paym in the UK and anything where I have to log into my banking app and then somebody else uh, gets a text message where they have to log into their banking app before they can it, it's just a little bit cumbersome um, some of the things they've thought through to make that neater and the integration with contacts it's, it's not bad and it's a good effort but we'll, we'll see this in the numbers
3: the one I find quite cool I don't know uh, if you have come across it is pekey. Pecky I, I find the experience quite cool. I mean, like you can send money uh, like on WhatsApp, on Facebook. Like you can really stay on the platform. You're talking to your friends to uh, to pay them back, linked to, like directly to your bank account. But you 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 do that like directly in uh, in the platform. You want? That's We've quite talked cool.
0: about Paykey a number of times on FinTech Insider News because uh, I think they got banned from the uh, Apple App Store yeah, because really? what they'd done is they changed the default keyboard on uh, Apple devices so that what you could do is in any messaging app you had. A button that looked like a dollar or a sterling or a euro sign and you would press that and somebody else would receive a message to install paykey as their default keyboard and then you could move money between each other so when i'm going to type you a message there's a dollar button or a a euro button and i just click really nice user experience that you think somebody would kind of captivate on because it's a lovely idea just seems that apple didn't really like it because it seemed to get in their way
1: well and actually ocbc have actually launched something almost identical now haven't they? but yes. launched it on Android devices. So, um, you know, Singa- Singapore-based OCBC sort of uh, liking what they saw and doing it for themselves. The, um, I mean, a lot of this sort of feels like
2: papering over, like, the cracks in a broken underlying, like, finance sort of drug payment system, right? I mean, in the UK, I open up my Barclays app and I just type in the de- bank details of the person I want to send it to. And it just gets sent to them and usually that day they'll just have it or they'll have it instantly. And so all of these kind of like, well, create a separate app, but why not just fix your fix the underlying sort of infrastructure so that I can just send money to people with other
4: bank Because it's old. Yeah, because it's it's in the
0: US
2: across, Pete, it is old, isn't
4: it? Yeah, and you know, 1970s. And where did Swift come from? And it's still you have character limitations on the number of characters that you can put in any single field to tell all the way through the channel where that money was spent, right? And
0: it's nigh impossible to do anything with it. And, of course, the clearinghouse uh, in the U.S. and ACH in the U.S. isn't like the U.K. where it's immediate. It takes two to three days. Zelle is built on top of that infrastructure. Uh, the banks that come into this system do effectively operate you know, where they some of them can move faster than that, where they some of them have bilateral relationships. Uh, but it, it, I do think it's that kind of experience that a lot of banks have tried to offer. I really hope that that peer-to-peer thing gets cracked in some way because it seems like the only people that can offer it are the tech companies that specialise. In it like paypal um, and we haven't really seen that explosion of innovation that we see in asia pacific for instance um next story is a, a slight change of direction um there's one in the uh the mr Report.com, which is a publication i've not heard of but apparently it exists uh, submitted to fintech inside and used by bob mclean who's a regular um submitter the title of this one is fintech the fastest growing industry in the u.s david
1: yeah, this is a really interesting one and one that definitely, is somebody who mispronunciates people's names, if anybody's read ahead on this one, is going to be hilarious for you. Mm-hmm. So brace yourself here. Um, so this is the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking and Housing. It has basically held a hearing to say evaluating the fintech landscape. So they're basically saying uh, fintech or financial technology, if any of you guys listening didn't know that already, then you're probably listening to the wrong podcast right now, um, had closed near to $13 billion of investment in 2016 from u.s based companies alone so they're, they're starting to basically say "Ooh, lots of people investing in this thing it might be a thing we might have to worry about this but there's a particular guy named in this so this is uh, u.s senator mike Crapo. i'm guessing how his, rude yeah how rude it's uh c-r-a-p-o well it's american long a Crepo, Crepo, uh, no. the American
0: long e. I'm gonna
1: be honest. If it was Crepo, it would be an e. But um, that's as... the
0: French long e. Right?
1: Really? Mm. <laughs> anyway. Poor, poor gentleman, Mike, let's call him US, US Senator Mike, uh, had some quite interesting things to say about this one really just on the basis of where other governments are really sort of exploring you know, regulatory sandboxes and really doing things to to foster innovation within those spaces that the US is really sort of falling behind um, so I, I think this is maybe stating slightly the obvious in terms of the the things that they need to kind of put in place which, you know, if anybody uh, is sort of working in the US, I think the, the major inhibitor to for for innovation within the US is is sort of uh, you know regulatory barriers from state to state governance models. You know I think everything that happens there is usually inhibited by those spaces, and really that's probably why many of the things that we've seen come out of the US that have been sort of innovations within the fintech space have predominantly just been kind of lipstick on a pig. To your point, Adam, earlier on about uh, payment sy- systems, so um, you know definitely the the right noises coming out of the u.s whether they're actually going to be able to fix them um i'm not really so sure
4: yep i mean i, w- I was there on holiday over the summer and people are still writing checks um so, so the f-
0: fastest way to move money peer to peer. it is and <laughs> in, in, <laughs> in the u.s it oh, genuinely is yeah yeah i'm not even joking like it, it makes you laugh but genuinely the case if you don't have venmo uh then if you're not going to venmo it to me then send me a check just there's that old thing, old saying or sort of old joke that America is a third world country. Yeah. <laughs> in in so many, many ways, basic but, things. But they're also country. 42% of our audience, so
4: we love them dearly. <laughs> there, there is a big play on convenience, though, right? I mean, Uber has become a verb, right, mm. in the U.S. and in many other parts of the world. But that was one of the things that stood out to me was just hearing friends and family after not being there for a year just refer to, well, I'm going to get from here to there. I'm going to Uber it, right? You'd think that more and more would be adopting the mobile technologies for payments, for anything having to do with finance, um, but it just hasn't been growing as fast as I would think. And what I would really, when you're talking about the $13 billion that was invested in 2016, I would again look back at that and say, well, how much of that is what we call the old school financial technology versus fintech,
0: which is a true rethinking of financial services, right? There's a lot of people dressing themselves up as fintech that are actually vendors to finance companies which is a different beast
4: yeah and capital 1 is doing some great things and they're on the leading foot and part of that 13 billion might have been their standalone that they set up to to capture you know, some of the, some of the fintech momentum that's going on. Right. So
0: to your point about verbs, um, people do say you know, Venmo it to me. Uh, that is, that has become a thing. Uh, they always, uh, the guys over at Barclays always wanted ping it to, to become that. Like it, that's why it was named what it was, ping it to me. Um, there's definitely that desire to, to kind of be in that place. I think and it, it it's starting to happen, but it, it's just not catching fire.
3: I would say there is on one side like the the capabilities, but on the other side, what uh, David was saying is quite interesting to see that the regulator is starting moving, in particular um, with the new fintech uh, charter that uh, they issued last year, because mm-hmm. that could be actually a massive move to. To step up fintech there by enabling, uh, fintech companies, specific fintech companies to, uh, launch nationally as opposed to one, um, state by one state.
0: And so the OCC that launched the Fintech Charter were, um, so Beth Nickerbocker who, who is actually at the OCC was on Fintech Insider about three or four weeks ago um, so if you go back through the episodes you can find out all, all about that. Uh, next story up is one from another one from TechCrunch, um, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Fagan, the prolific Fagan, Gary uh, Fagan. I, I, I don't s- know if
1: he has a day job. He yeah, could, no, like, possibly can't have a day job.
0: But it, Fintech Insider News is great and if you want to give Gary Fagan some stick, FintechInsiderNews.com is the place to do it. Start Bank has launched their own marketplace. Of course, they've been uh, Megan Kaywood is a friend of the show and has been talking about their marketplace. And it integrates with itemized receipt and reward startup Flux. What's going on here, guys? Are you familiar with this one? Uh, yeah, re- really, really interesting company. You know,
1: you, on the surface of this, it's like mm, like a digital receipting thing. Uh, but I actually caught up with these guys. Uh, I think we can kind of play that now. But um, it was a uh, way more than I expected. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to a really, really interesting company. So, Matty, Veronique, thanks very much for joining us. You guys are from Flux. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about Flux and and actually maybe before we start, tell us a little bit about your background because you've both had quite uh, an interesting background before the company. Sure. So we transitioned, uh, from, from working at another, uh, successful,
5: uh, high growth company, which is, uh, Revolut. And now we're working on a really, really exciting proposition. What we're working on right now, it, it really came about, um, after a realization that we had. Um, and that realization is that, It's absolutely insane that today you can go from using 21st century technology of contactless payments to then go to 100 BC technology of paper receipts and loyalty cards. For us, that made absolutely no sense at all. And what we realized uh, beyond that is that actually... The information that's stored on receipts is really valuable. Um, it's the history of your purchases at the most granular level possible. And actually, that data is something that creates value for everybody. Uh, it's great for consumers because it means you get much better insights into your spending. It means you can also get much better personalization. Better personalization is great for retailers because it means uh, you can increase your sales and increase sales at retailers is great for banks because it means increased uh, card usage. So for us, it, it it's something that's pretty obvious that this is, you know, data that will become ubiquitous. The only question is, is kind of how. And, and, and fundamentally, the only way that we think this can happen is that it has to be absolutely seamless for the customer. Uh, and so the way that we make that happen is that we automatically link that data to payment cards. Um, so you could just walk into a shop, uh, pay, uh, with your bank card and we're able to, uh, yeah, know which card it is and uh, attribute that information and sort it in the same safe place that transactions live today, which is your bank statement
1: awesome so uh, like not sort of uh you know content with doing really interesting things at revolute you've gone on to do really really interesting things with flux before we sort of i guess dig into that a little bit more where were you guys before Revolut? then tell me a little bit more of your your backstory
5: before revolute i was uh studying physics and uh yeah i finished my bachelor's uh, dropped out of my master's went traveling around india for a little while got very frustrated with fx rates and came back and found revolute and uh, did that for a little while, and yeah, that went pretty well. And 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 then afterwards, uh, started Flux. So that that's kind of
1: my background: physics yeah. to banking. I'm I'm liking that uh, that that arc. But yeah. how about you, Vronik?
6: So for me, it's um it's a bit bit more boring story. I was I used to be at Morgan Stanley before Revolut. So I spent three years on the investment banking side, um, doing debt capital markets for governments and government agencies. <laughs> so that was me. I actually never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. So Maddie actually was, um, the, the guy who convinced me to leave Morgan Stanley and join Revolut <laughs> as the fourth employee. So we met at a startup, uh, meetup. So I, I acted on gut instinct, which for me was rare <laughs> and, uh, haven't looked back since and, yeah, very, very proud of where we are. I mean, in a very, very short amount of time, we've come very far. So very proud.
1: That's great. You're clearly a very convincing guy. That's uh, that's good. Um, uh, be, be careful that during the course of this interview, what uh, what, I, what I sign up to you next. Um, so so tell me, I guess a little bit more about flux then. So so receipting is that what we're looking at, or is it something more than that? Sure. Um, so a, a bit more of the, of the backstory is actually when when I first started
5: looking at this, I thought it'd be a great idea to get a sense of scale of, of how many receipts. I was given. I knew I got a lot of paper receipts, but I didn't know quite how many. So I actually started collecting every receipt that I was given, and I I, I stuck them on my bedroom wall at home uh, to remind myself every time I went to bed and, and woke up that the problem had to be solved. Um, and it turned into something that I, I call my wall of hate, um, and literally uh, my room was covered uh, from floor to ceiling you you've seen the photo, mm-hmm. and um, yeah the deal I made with myself was by the time my room was like literally covered uh, yeah, the the problem had to be solved, and there was only a, a meter uh, square on 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 my ceiling by the time it actually got complete, so yeah no it's uh yeah, it, 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 it's come from a, it's come from a very good place.
1: Yeah, yeah. that's, that's, uh, sort of user research in its, uh, truest <laughs> sense. Uh,
5: but, yeah, but, uh, in, in terms of kind of what that made me realize is that more than the receipt, it's, it's, it's much more about what's stored on the receipt. Um, so the information that, is contained on receipts, um, is, is really valuable. Um, it's, it's like, it is the most granular level of insight into things that you've purchased, everything that's passed the money test. It's, you know, things that you valued enough that you'd actually part with your, you know, cash to actually get. Um, and it's something that we're seeing can do a lot more than just be a history of your expenses. You know, what we're really doing at flux is is building the infrastructure that allows item level information to become ubiquitous. Uh, and we're building the platform that enables that. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that we can do is empower consumers to have much more informed decisions about their finances. And, you know, we're incredibly proud to be working with Starling as their first fully integrated partner in their banking marketplace. An extension of that is going to be looking at how we can do Things like, um, you know, automated expensing for for kind of business purchases or even using that data to do things like calorie tracking because we can see what food you purchase and therefore that can be fed into your health app. So we really want to build the, the platform that enables this data to become ubiquitous because we see that it's something that is valuable and good and then what will happen with that? It's it's kind of yet to be seen. I think we're kind of just, you know, seeing the tip of the iceberg of what we can actually do with it.
1: Yeah, I, I think you know, I'm completely with you. I think re- paper receipts, you know, as as far as you know, sample size of me, then uh, they they pretty much kind of use the the best best case for me is like where I put my chewing gum. Um, so you know, in terms of sort of any real sort of need for them anymore, it's it's kind of completely gone. So, but to to your point though, this isn't really about the the. You know, removal of paper. It's about enriching all of the data experiences that you're having through all of the transactional capability. So, so I guess, you know, you, you're sort of one of the first companies that I'm really seeing of, uh, and actually the, the traction that you're, you're getting with the companies you're working with, you know, you're building on top of APIs, building on top of the, the new platforms that the challenger banks are bringing through. Is that fair to say?
5: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, I think one of the keys that we've seen is that the only way that we can really see that, this data will become like fully accessible and, and ubiquitous is that it's completely available to everybody. Um, and we, the only way that we can really see that happening is that it's a fully seamless uh, experience for the consumer, um, which is why we integrate with banks, because it, it means that for the customer they don't have any extra steps you know there's no entering email addresses or scanning qr codes or taking photos it it, it's just part of the payment process except you just get the additional benefits and value and yeah it's been a pleasure to work with um you know challenge banks especially starling just because it means that we've been able to do something today that you know even a year ago would have been really hard to do like working with tier one banks is 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 incredible because they provide so much like value, but it takes it takes more time. And and being able to work with Challenger banks means that we're able to like prove the the theory that we had so that yeah we can um, expand that further.
1: Yeah. And, and I guess that's a, probably a really good place to ask, actually. So how, how has it been working with, with the, the the organizations that you've been been working with now? You know, this is almost a forerunner, I'd say, for some of the things that we're seeing with things like PSD2 and all the changes that are coming through. You know, we're going to have thousands of companies who are going to want to be integrating through APIs with some legacy organizations and within the challenges as well. So h- how easy has it been to, to work with these guys?
6: Well, I, th- I think a, a key... Thing that we're very like grateful for is we were one of 600 startups chosen to be part of the Barclays Techstars Accelerator this year. So we actually went through that program from January to May of this year. So that has given us an incredible, strong relationship with the Barclays team. In terms of what we're doing, and why it why we think it works. It's a lot around timing, and you absolutely hit, hit the nail on the head. It's around the fact that with PST2 around the corner. You have banks starting to open up these APIs, these transaction APIs. They're, you know, they're either ready and and launched like Starling, or they're supposed to be ready by early next year. Um, That's a complete change in approach to partnership, to integration, to openness. And on the flip side of our business, uh, we're seeing that point of sale companies that work with some of our retail partners like eat you know these point of sale companies are very open like they have op- APIs that are sophisticated um accessible as long as you have the retailer uh retailer's permission of course and those two factors like the really the API economy is is what has made flux possible now and and that's why we think the timing's right and it's funny because when we start explaining flux people a lot of a lot of t- the time, it's like, oh god, another receipt startup. I don't want to hear about it. And we understand that we get that frustration. But what's fundamentally different is that we don't alter behavior. Uh, we're not asking customers to download another app because we realize very, very early on, like that—that's just not gonna uh, fly unless you have huge volume of retailers on the other side. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then the logical place to put the receipt is is in the banking statement. So by partnering with the banks, with uh, banks like Starling, it just makes the customer experience absolutely seamless. And so far, the feedback has been very, very positive. People are like, oh, of course, that's where my uh, history of my purchases should be. Um, next to my payment of five pounds at EAT, I should be able to see my soy cappuccino and my blueberry muffin. And eventually as well, Um like the next step in our partnership is to add in another feature on the Flex platform which is automated loyalty points so because we see exactly what you buy uh, if eats running a a certain loyalty scheme for soups or toasties we can just automatically credit those points and then redeem it um through a cashback because we're in the banking uh app
1: yeah i think like you say the intelligence that this actually brings to transactional behavior is just you know it'll be we talk about sort of digitized banking versus digital banking. This sounds like a real step forward in what digital banking could be, because um, whether it be loyalty, whether it be uh, health insurance connotations, as you suggested earlier on, or whether it's just my wife catching me out eating that bacon roll that I really <laughs> said I wouldn't be eating, then, uh, you know, all of these things actually are, you know, intelligence around financial services that just has not been there for for decades so um really really interesting I, I guess good to probably bring you in at this point megan megan Kaywood, would show regular fintech insider t-shirt wearer right now um, it would be um be good to uh, to get your your reaction as well so what i like why what's why is this integration sort of um, really really important i guess from a starling's perspective as well
7: sure there's there's a few reasons for it so one when you look at flux they're very aligned with us from Um, a strategic perspective from a brand perspective, really wanting to solve the same goals around helping customers have better insights into their financial lives and using data um, to to do so, and giving customers that ownership of the data. And similarly, when you look at open banking, we've really been wanting to kind of be out ahead of it. So when we launched our developer platform earlier this year, it was really to get the developer community to start engaging, um, start using these APIs and building cool integrations on top of them. So with Flux, it very much fit for us um, given that they're ready to consume these APIs and also provide value back to Starlink customers um, in the marketplace. And then the marketplace, it's a really nice first integration because we wanted to launch early with our first partner um, and starting to get that customer feedback around the marketplace and what people think and what people want. And with Flux, it's nice because it's frictionless. So you go into the marketplace, you turn on Flux, and it's just there. It just works. Um, so it fit from technology, brand, um, and utility for our customers. Yeah, I,
1: I guess there's, there's one thing being able to sort of consume and integrate an API. There's another thing actually having the capacity and capability to fully integrate it into an experience. So, you know, you guys have gone uh, really beyond what I'm pretty sure 99% of big banks out there would actually be able to do in terms of integrating it into a transactional experience. So is this another advantage of the, the challenger banks? You know, you guys can, you've got real fleet of foot from a technology perspective to actually do this stuff.
7: Yeah, definitely. When we look across the landscape of fintechs, we're just very aligned from a technology perspective, meaning that we can move at speed to enable them to offer these types of services to customers. So uh, there's often kind of this quote of, you know, if it takes 12 to 24 months for this fintech to integrate with a bank, that's enough time for them to, to die you know if that's how long it takes to get to market so for us it just aligns with we want to help Fintechs to kind of draw awareness around their product to start getting to market faster to really enable this type of competition innovation particularly around open apis and letting customers share their banking data to do so so since we can do that quite quickly because we've already built out our apis it's easy for us on the other hand to consume their apis and manifest that in the banking app too because we, we're built from the ground up to do this exact thing then it just it just made sense for us
1: i think at least six months of those 12 months would be going through the procurement process to actually get to be able to do the work with the bank in the first place so uh, it's uh, your 12 months was probably reasonably ambitious in that sense. <laughs> but uh, yeah. so is this the sort of first of many sort of integrations that we're going to start seeing coming through with the the marketplace you've been setting up
7: definitely so um over the coming weeks and months what you'll see is more and more partners rolling out per each category and to begin with it'll very much be an App Store-like experience where you can search and find um, and integrate with those that you choose. In the future, what we'll do is look to enable more scale. So around letting as many fintechs that are compliant and have an API to integrate into the marketplace to be there and then increasingly using customer data to be more intelligent about it to help make um, recommendations for which products they might want or use based off of their spending habits or indicated needs or desires or whatever it may be um, to make it increasingly intelligent for users but yeah over um, as of now you'll start seeing more and more partners in that marketplace
1: nice it's really great to see, see this stuff really sort of coming to fruition now so I think uh, it feels like we're uh, accelerating into uh, you know hopefully a, a better place for banking so but Matty, veronic what's what's next for flux then you guys are uh, clearly uh, you know there's more vendors and there's more banks out there to, to really be going after in terms of the merchants as well you know
5: where, where we want to get to is we want to have further reach on the consumers so so kind of you know looking at you know challenges but but also at, at the, the big banks as well and it does take time but it's it's really worth doing and then really expanding the proposition for uh for 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 consumers on the retailer side you know we're looking to go after high frequency retailers because we want to cover the majority uh, of your wallet share we want to be able to provide customers with massive value and that comes from understanding as much about their their spending as as we can and so it's it's really going to be pushing hard to to expand on both those fronts that that's uh, going to be keeping us pretty busy over the next 12 months
6: and a core reason uh we're actually we're three founders right and our third found, uh, co-founder stuck to his keyboard at the moment because we have really exciting retail partners to announce over the next two months so um some household names on the high street that we're very very excited about um so i would stay tuned
1: (laughs) sounds good sounds good you'll have to come back and uh tell us more when uh when you uh when you get to that point absolutely i I think it's super interesting because it's it's kind of been i guess the promise of somebody like a tesco bank or a sainsbury's bank you know having full access to their itemized uh you know purely just in terms of the stuff that's happening within their stores that has never really come to fruition so you know the fact that you guys can take this out to you know uh, big and challenger banks, as well as all of the different merchants that are out there, really sort of enriching those experiences. It feels, feels great. Where, so where can people learn a little bit more about Flux then?
5: Absolutely. Yeah. So you can go to our website, which is tryflux.com. Uh, you can actually start using Flux today with Starling. Uh, so if you have a Starling account, just make sure you have the, the latest version. And then you go to the marketplace, uh, tap on loyalty and receipts and then add flux and you're done. Um, and then you can shop at any Eat store or with Bel Air and you get the full itemized breakdown of uh, your receipt. And if you don't have Starling, then you can sign up today, uh, and use the code, uh, flux, uh, 2017, flux in caps, uh, and get, get the ability to skip the queue and, and try flux today. So that's the, that's the best way.
6: Um, for the first 1000 customers, um, that shop at Eat, with uh, Flux and Starling, they'll get a free coffee with um, their purchase. So don't Skipping. miss out on that. What caffeine? Yes. Skipping
1: cues, <laughs> free coffee. What more could you want? <laughs> Fantastic. Great for joining us. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT
0: subscription. FinTech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right FinTech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test FinTech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com.
6: This episode of FinTech Insider is brought to you by SmartDX, a smart communication solution. The days of managing capital markets documentation using Word docs and emails are over when you use SmartDX in its innovative, collaborative negotiation environment, built by the industry for the industry. SmartDX simplifies drafting, negotiation, and execution of all capital markets documentation for all asset classes and product types while giving you transparency, control, and digital data that can be extracted at any point in the process. Learn more at www.smartcommunications.com smartDX.
0: Thank you, as always, to our sponsors. And just quickly, before we get back into the news, there's something we want to say. Uh, we never have enough time to cover every news story that's happened in the week, but we do have a platform for that. Fintechinsidernews.com is where you can find out more about the stories we've discussed, and you can get involved too. So if you're ever shouting at us with silent rage whilst you're listening to this podcast, that's the place to get your own back. So you can go to fintechinsidernews.com, or you can find us on Twitter at FinTech Insider. Telephone, telegram, tell a friend, tell everyone to get on Fintech fintechinsidernews.com. Uh, next story up uh, it was submitted to Fintech Insider News by Alexis Jamie Dimon, the vaunted CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, slams Bitcoin as a fraud and says that any of his traders caught investing in Bitcoin will be fired on the spot, and that his daughter, or one of his children, I believe, I don't know if it's his daughter, who's made a lot of money on Bitcoin, thinks she's a genius because she's made a lot of money on Bitcoin, but clearly she's an idiot. Uh, Jamie Dimon, of course, has <laughs> previous in slamming Bitcoin. He's done this in 2015 uh, and 2014. And a couple of, uh, two out of three times he's done it, Um, Bitcoin has gone on to rally. um, And one of the few times Bitcoin has gone to fall. But actually, in the past uh, sort of day or so, as we record here on the 14th of September, uh, Bitcoin has fallen by about 15%, although that probably has a lot more to do with one of the major Chinese exchanges saying that they will no longer be operating in China than it does Jamie Dimon. Uh, but I find it interesting that Jamie Dimon makes this statement around the same time his uh, trading floor results were down by more than 20%. And what we're, talking about, uh, uh, and what we're talking about as a headline <laughs> is that the fact that uh, Jamie D- Diamond says a thing about Bitcoin, not JP Morgan has bad results. Anybody got any thoughts on this one? So
1: is it is it literally as simple as that one? Is he just doing like a whole sort of, you know, switcheroo for PR or uh, well, does he, he mean this?
0: Well, he also came out and said about how mean the regulators are. <clears> oh, <throat> <Aww, laughs>
1: yeah.
2: I, th- I mean, I just, you know, for a, a guy to come out and say... You know, Bitcoin sucks, and so on. And by the way, my daughter invested in Bitcoin, and now he thinks she's smart. It's,
0: <laughs> it's just like, like mean it's to not his daughter,
2: He comes
4: off like a bit of a douche. In this it life. comes off not. It comes off like a bit of Trump in just having these off-the-cuff comments that then get picked up by the press, obviously, and turn into something. But isn't it genius PR? It, it is. It is. When you make a controversial controversial comment, you'll get covered, and you'll get a lot of press out of it. I mean, that's the whole, you know, Trump credo, which is great. But, you know, I don't think that we're going to see much come out of this other than just a short term blip.
0: I feel quite sad about this because JP Morgan, of course, have a software project called Quorum, which is open source and really interesting. And they've partnered with Zcash, uh, Zcash, one of the more interesting uh, cryptocurrencies and startups out there, uh, to do an entirely new way of doing uh, digital asset trading. Uh, And, of course, Amber Baldet, who works uh, on that project, is one of the most interesting minds in the blockchain space. So they've got some very smart people potentially building the futures of uh of their capital markets infrastructure in the blockchain space but then publicly they're making these statements against bitcoin at at the very very top it just feels like the left hand may not be talking to the right i
2: think i mean he's got this big long quote where he says you know well the only reason you would use bitcoin is if you were if you lived in venezuela and quite a few people live in venezuela um if you live in ecuador you know Quite a few people live there too, or if you're North Korea, which, you know, is a place where, where people live. With those three um, dicks though, whether it's like, you know, in Venezuela, this might be fine. I like, know right, exactly, but well, he's basically, I mean, but he has this sort of statement which says if you're in any of these countries, or if you're a drug dealer or a murderer, you know, he's just saying, or a criminal. Um, then sure, there might be a market for using Bitcoin. It's like, well, that's quite a lot of people, actually. <laughs> you but know? also, weren't
0: uh, the biggest users of the U.S. dollar previously as well? Like, the U.S. dollar is used by a lot of people in, in the same senses. And also, like, I, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but um, a friend of mine's uh, Chainalysis uh, helped the FBI capture criminal activity. They were involved in, in a lot of the uh, early shutdowns of Silk Road. Uh, Chainalysis are a really interesting company because they look at every all the activity in Bitcoin and they reckon that maybe 65-70% of the activity in Bitcoin is people holding on to Bitcoins. About another 20-25% to of activity in Bitcoin is people trading Bitcoins. About 5% is people doing international remittances, which is probably why China has come out harsh because if you happen to have currency controls, the inability to stop somebody moving money into Bitcoin and then out of the country could be a problem. And then there's a very small fraction, maybe 2-3%, that is illicit activity, which is exactly what you'd expect to see in any payment system and a lot less than you get with cash. So it's not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, uh, monzo.com uh, a story submitted to us by Gary Fagan of the submitting beast that is Gary Fagan. Please give him a stick go to fintechinsidernews.com and let's 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 troll this man relentlessly for being amazing at what he does. Um, Monzo uh, talking about ATM fees abroad and they're asking the Monzo community to decide on pricing. That's really interesting that a bank is thinking about how are they going to do their pricing. So why do they need to ask the community about this one? David, do you have any thoughts? Uh,
1: sort of because they kind of
0: care which is i guess is a weird
1: thing idea. yeah it's, it's kind of a weird how thing naive, but, but I, how naive of you I, I, I like this and i think it's a great thing that they're doing and they're actually engaging the community that they've built up to to really understand what you know what their tolerance is to, to to and actually to understand the fact that they're having to introduce these types of fees but like sophie this is like not something kind of new right you did this with Fedor about two years ago right
3: yeah, it's exactly uh, the philosophy of Fedor is what we have been introducing. So indeed, like two years ago, we, uh, we actually asked the community about the pricing of the cards. Uh, Explaining that there are some costs behind it, I mean, like interchange fee is something where the the bank actually gets revenues uh, out of it, but it's very difficult for any bank in Europe to uh, to not lose money on retail. So you you have to come up with um, with smart pricing that is fine, fair, and transparent to the client, and it's what we have been doing uh, with um, with Hodor. We actually asked the community and uh, what came out very smart out of it is that the community member at first were not really happy about to po- potentially make them pay for ATM fees. But they came up with the, uh, a way to, to go around it, which is to do cash back at supermarkets, which is a fantastic way because we make money out of interchange uh, there. So it's really good for Fido, uh bank or any kind of bank that is uh, doing the same. But on the other side, didn't make them happy, so we integrated it uh, at customer service as a feedback. So every time a a customer calls for that, customer service is talking about this Uh,
0: solution. Of course, FIDA were the first bank to have a community around them, and and I think this is an interesting model of getting that feedback and really talking about what do you want to do. Uh, And Kadim, you were talking about a few people, you know, one or two that were were really annoyed by the Monzo card before we were recording, and it's just like, anecdotally, you do pick up a few people that are annoyed, but you can't please all of the people all the time i guess and you've got to go with what the community wants which is a hard thing to do
2: i mean i think i mean you know credit to fido and and to monzo and uh to lots of uh sort of like fintech banks who are more in tune and more engaged with their customer base because people can you know talk about well what will happen to monzo in the long term how will they make money etc etc uh but fundamentally you know so they are a bank they have a banking license they are doing banking and they are very open about what they do, and they are very transparent about what they are going to do and about the the you know the current things that don't work, how they want to fix that and uh and I think that I think that's a good thing and so yeah, I mean, I have a couple of friends who are on Twitter who are saying, "Oh, this was the only reason I used Monzo and I was like, no, it's not you you use because it has like a really you know cool, bright card and it gives you a bit of budgeting and you know so I think uh I think this is something that's quite straightforward and actually I think people do understand that, well, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, uh, taking the mick a little bit if I'm going abroad and taking out 400 pounds every single day for free.
1: Yeah, I, that sounds weird to me. Like, don't know what holidays you go on but i don't withdraw 400 pounds from a cash uh, cash point every day for a month you know that seems uh seems like there might be something weird happening there but the, the other thing that i found interesting about this one is actually is part of the article that uh, that monzo actually put out they they sort of did a, a bit of a ready reckoner for you know if we went to berlin or if we went to um san francisco taking out some money so taking out a hundred dollars or taking out uh was it a hundred euros i think it was in this the other instance in in berlin then kind of what was the charges for that now bizarrely first Direct came out pretty terribly on both of those things despite the fact that they get the the best ranking for you know customer satisfaction in pretty much every every ranking you ever see so um it's kind of strange i wonder how much is just down to perception around brands than it is so you know hsbc which is pretty much First Direct painted a different color, all of the fees for HSBC versus uh, First Direct were at least half in most of those instances. So it's kind of quite a a weird sort of setup that they've actually put in place there.
4: It'd be interesting to understand as well how it all stacks up with the business model and how their actual financial results turn out from this. I mean, if you take a look at Radiohead 10 years ago, released an album and asked, how much would you like to pay for this? Right. And you left it up to the buyer to say, well, I'll pay a tenner for it. I'll pay a nothing, you know, a cent for it. Um, now Radiohead don't care that much about making money. Monzo obviously do. Um, but they want to demonstrate that ethos out to the world that listen, we're here for you as a partner rather than we're here to kill you on charges.
0: They do, but not from this fee yeah. structure specifically. Their goal is that they'll make money from being a marketplace and that they will get other people to sell other products by being a great current account and by having a lower cost base. But also, when they talk about this uh, on on their blog, they're, they they're pretty transparent with their ATM costs. It's like they show you the chart of what their ATMs are costing them, and they say, "This is what it's costing us." We need to cover this cost. We don't see this as a profit centre for us going forward. They actually explicitly say that these are the options we have to cover this cost. Which one would you prefer? But our business model is elsewhere. We're a different way of looking at banking.
3: I mean, it would be still fine to make money out of it, I think. But out of a just experience with, uh, with Fedor, again, because we have done that for the ATM, but we have done that with the interest of the overdraft and the interest of the saving months, is that the clients actually ask for things that are fair, so if we explain them that we still need to make money out of it because we need to run operations, we need to bring innovations, like we have been running that this way since 2010, like, they have always uh, ask, been asking for being fair, not about paying nothing.
0: What a crazy idea! They want things to be fair, but they don't <laughs> mind you being a business. This is this is a crazy, crazy idea. Well, well, um,
1: people are people are fine with fair value exchange if they feel that you're actually doing things on their behalf and actually delivering things of value, then they're happy to pay for that. You know, and I think you know I can't imagine a scenario where you know we. We'd have the HSBC CEO going to, you know, to Twitter to ask people what they would be interested in paying for FX or something. You know, it's kind of a uh, but uh, but I think this is the, you know, an, an ongoing trend of just people actually talking to their customers like human beings, isn't
0: it? What a great idea. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, there's a story here in Bloomberg where Vikram Pandit, the former CEO of Citibank, who was the CEO of Citibank during the financial crisis, says that 30% of bank jobs may disappear in the next five years. And he's largely saying the robots are coming. It's going to be AI that's going to do that. Um, Pete, do you have any thoughts on this?
4: Yeah. I mean, 30% is a number that I got comfortable with over the years in terms of looking at the infrastructure, looking at the operations and seeing how much manual activity there is, how much paper pushing there is, and what could you Expectedly eliminate change is hard though um, because you're not just changing technology or changing culture and what people do every day Is it the right thing to do? Absolutely I think it's something like 65% of 12 year olds today the jobs they'll have when they come out of university Those jobs don't exist yet. I think you look at AT&T Retraining reskilling 114,000 employees where technology has eliminated their jobs um, 30% of the, the banking world their jobs going it will happen Um, But within the next five years,
0: perhaps not. So there's a link story here, David, in um, Fintech Insider News from Fagan again, uh, where European banks have closed over 9,000 branches in the last year. Are these... um cuts that uh, Vikram Pandit's talking about in Bloomberg, just going to be people closing branches or are we really finally going to go into the middle and back office? Because my view is, and I don't know about you, but most banks have left their operations kind of the same. Like I'm dealing with, I as a customer now have a new mobile app that's that's really, really nice and it can do a few new things. But the back end of the banks is doing largely the same thing it was doing 20, 30 years ago. Do they have to start addressing that finally? Um, I I don't think this is necessarily the the same sort of breadth. If I'm honest with you, in terms of where we're
1: where we sort of looking at these things. So, and I think actually the the first one here, where we're talking about the uh, article from uh, Bloomberg, in terms of like the the announcement from City, you know, that's that's very much kind of a, a bit of an echo of last week. We actually heard from what was it the big number going to kill lots of. People from it was a, an announcement from Deutsche Bank. Like if I was, uh, you know, from City oh, or Deutsche Bank, <laughs> yeah, I'd still be reasonably sort of fearful that somebody very senior in my company was basically saying we're probably going to be replacing at least thirty percent of your jobs in this company. That's quite a terrifying HR resolution to to sort of figure out if nothing else. So um, I think the branch one is different, if I'm honest with you, because actually it, it sort of feels like it's not necessarily just saying uh, we're going to re- replace you with computers, it's that we don't have to replace you with anybody. You know, like fundamentally the branch as a, as a channel for uh, access to financial services is just basically dwindling in the in the European market. Uh, and probably rightly so, to be honest with you, because actually not only is it not the channel of choice for people actually accessing financial services right now, but the excuses for having a branch network, so implementing a really crappy process that requires you to take a piece of paper into a branch is just going away. So I think part of this is banks actually getting to where the customers are, but also not just using branch network as a,
0: an escape route for shitty experiences. Uh, branch network has been as exactly as you say, the escape route. I, I can't quite finish it. Oh, the branch will carry that. I was talking to a, a very large US bank, um, a couple of folks earlier today, and they, they gave me an amazing stat that said roughly uh, 6% of their customer acquisition comes through digital, 94% comes through branch and that's not because they haven't tried to do digital it's because they couldn't move the operations and the back office to be able to enable digital properly and there was a lot of also I think compliance resistance there and control teams who just didn't believe it was possible to do it digitally and then we show them what Fedor have done uh, and then we show them what N26 have done and you say that actually Barfin are one of the most tough regulators in the world when it comes to how do you digitally onboard somebody? And for Fedor and N26 and others to have gone 100% digital in terms of onboarding, it's entirely possible. But it, it, you will hold yourself back as an organization if you hang on to that legacy infrastructure. But I think people just haven't seen that it can be done in a different way. And, and I think this is where the US banks can benefit from having a look at something like, I don't know, 11FS Pulse and seeing the videos <laughs> of how Fedor does it. Um, but also good, seeing the videos- like plug there, Simon. it's yeah, Again, it, it, it yeah. Slits it right in there. You didn't even know I was plugging in. didn't it at all. I think I, mean, I, I think, I mean, whether it's over the next
2: five years or whatever time scale it is, I mean, you have to assume that the number of people working in banking... Uh, or, in the activities that currently exist in banking, you have to assume that's going to fall and it's going to fall drastically. you know with various like machine learning techniques, people are now saying, Well, instead of having people say this is a uh dodgy transaction or this is a, an okay transaction, actually you can get a computer to do that, do it much faster and much more accurately than humans can do um the the one weird thing i mean he he kind of goes a bit too far i I think, and says, you know I see a banking world going from large financial institutions to one that's a little bit more decentralized. I mean, I just don't buy that. I I,
0: I think that we're going to have scale economies don't go away because because AI came along. In fact, if anything, the best algorithms are going to be owned by the the largest organizations. But you make a really interesting point about that fraud prevention. So fraud prevention in banking used to be let's set a rule. So you had these fraud experts who would look at the data and they go, ah, so we're seeing a lot of activity coming out of this country of this type of transaction. Maybe there was a lot of diamonds being bought in, in some part of the world and then people were trying to bring money into the bank. Let's create a rule so that if anybody tries to make a card transaction in that country for this amount of money, then we're just going to reject it. And they would... People would look at spreadsheets and they'd create rules. And most banks still kind of do that. If if I'm being this rules-based thing is is very manual. Machine learning is the other way around. It looks at trends over time and it looks at the data and it's learning from what everybody else is doing. It looks at other sources of data, everything from global positioning satellites to where a car's moving to you know whether well, suddenly a load of transactions coming through this store, but there were no cars in the car park at the same time. This sort of stuff allows you to be really sophisticated and actually have a better, um, lower fraud risk without having the false positives. This idea of false positives was I'll reject a transaction and I'll just kind of reject it outright because one in 20 of those transactions is fraudulent. That's a crazy. Like that's the industry standard for false positives. One in twenty. The amount of customers you have to annoy just to try and prevent fraud is is truly. Oh, I,
4: I still have my bank with a notification that any time you travel abroad, pre, please let us know in advance. Yeah. yeah. And if not, your card will be shut off because we won't recognize the transaction.
0: Whereas uh, the experience I get again, sorry, um, Jason is a co-founder, but I do love Monzo, and it's not just because of Jason. Although I do love Jason too. Um, it, it, um, I do, <laughs> even when it's in Chicago. Yeah. Um, this experience I get when I the first transaction I make with my Monzo card is, oh, welcome to the country. Um, here's your exchange rate. Uh, enjoy your stay.
2: I get that anyway, so I go to the country and then I get like a text from the local, uh, you know, mobile phone provider saying, hey, how's it going? It's going to cost you £30 uh, a second to make a call. (laughs)
0: Uh, And you know, it's just the same.
2: Relationship Uh. building, yeah. It's similar, yeah. (laughs) But
0: from from problem to solution, so if we're losing a lot of jobs and banks have high cost uh, infrastructure, there's a story in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald, uh, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Sharon, uh, that says that ANZ Bank in Australia Australia? They're New Zealand, aren't they? They're, uh, they're Kiwi. My it's apology. the
1: Australian division, actually, of that organisation that's going through quite an extensive level of restructuring. So I actually think this one... It, it sounds like real sort of nonsense if I'm honest with you when you read the, the headline <laughs> but actually everything that you read through this is it makes total sense so the this Just is this is about a um, an organization that feels like it's truly actually understanding what agile actually is you know agile is is definitely not uh, an element of uh, you know sticking up post-it notes through uh, through a, a meeting room and you know maybe uh, allowing people to take a tie off and put some jeans on you know like that's not agile working methods. so you know this is is uh anz really sort of um embracing what um their divisions and moving them to the sort of tribes and squads technology that we're really sort of used to seeing within uh you know they sort of quote sort of the the netflix and the spotify models but you know i i think it's probably ambitious to to sort of restructure an entire bank to 150 startups as it's uh sort of said in the headline but everything that they actually say in the uh the the sort of um the body of this article actually just makes total sense so you know shane Elliott, who's the um uh, one of the the sort of chief uh, management in anz you know clearly gets what agiles about but um whether they can actually pull this one off is is probably another matter the the best thing that i think in this if i'm honest with you is that they're actually going to turn huge divisions down to 10 people you know the idea that agile is based on a, a small team of like highly skilled, empowered people with a multi sort of dimension of understanding of what uh, you know risk and product and business and design and technology actually is like all for that. So That's that, an
0: interesting number, but wouldn't eleven be better?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, they they didn't think that through, did they? Yeah. But um, but, but the digital
0: is un- a small team sport. Yeah, yes.
1: exactly. So I, you know, I think all of the if you know you read each of the paragraphs in this as if a startup was doing it then yes can you t- sort of transcribe 100,000 plus people from a HSBC or a you know a Barclays or an RBS or something into or an in or this or way? Wells Fargo
0: or yeah yeah it kind of feels difficult to kind of really make that happen it's an interesting model to to try and play with but you've started a greenfield organization with FIDOR like how do you guys think about this is this something easier from the ground up yeah
3: so um, so this is we are of course running agile methodology and this is something that we are running with our corporate clients um, as well so when w- working on launching banks uh, with them based on the FIDOR technology like this is the method we are using on uh, over four years uh, four weeks it's called uh, an inception and we are working with a reduced team over agile methodology and uh, um, what we see is great results people get really excited about it they have never seen it they see how efficient it is like whatever like everything they can uh, they can do with it however like I think the ANZ story is a very bold move now I'm just wondering like culturally speaking how do you do that at this scale mm. like people are, are are people really ready and can an organization swift from normal uh, methodology to agile methodology overnight i'm i'm not sure
0: Absolutely, because the amount of organizations I see that have had McKinsey come in and sell them the Agile methodology, and then they can't actually, what they organize around is Scrumfall. They do some kind of waterfall thing, that and they call it Agile, and they go to the Agile church, and they use all the terms of Agile, but they're not actually Agile. This is restructuring around Agile properly. So we, to David's point, I really want to applaud actually restructuring around it. But there's a second point that Galaboshkovich often makes friend of the show, which is, how do you realigning incentives as well? Because if the P&L owners look exactly the same as they used to and they've got exactly the same incentives, are you really getting agile just because you've changed your reporting lines? I think there's an interesting question there, David. I, oh, so I was going
2: to say, I mean, one of the weird things I find as a journalist reading about um, all these various sort of organizational and management techniques is that they are utterly alien to my experience of the world of work. Like, as a journalist, you are a unit of exactly one and it is like incumbent on you, like as an individual, to deliver, and and that is it. Like that is the entire kind of like organizational world. And so I kind of, and so in in that sense, I kind of like think, yeah, it is like the smaller the unit, the better. Um, but I also imagine that if you, I mean, if you, I, I, I bet ninety percent of people at ANZ Bank read that article and then were like what on earth is going on and um are we gonna go to work next week and suddenly everything is totally turned upside down
0: but we could talk about this forever this wraps up another news show uh where can people find out more about you cadim oh i'm on uh twitter at at cadim and i'm on uh at alphaville at ftalphaville.ft.com. thank you very much cadim for being with us uh sophie where can people find out more about you and fido
3: yeah. At Fidor, uh, at Sophie Kippo on, on Twitter and SG at Fidor.d.
0: Fantastic. And Pete? And I'm
4: at, at Norio Ventures 1 and also at Pete Townsend NV
0: and www.norioventures.com. Brilliant. Well, that wraps up another new show. As always, if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or on Facebook, on the Fintech Insider page. Was that like a West Country accent you just did there on fin- <laughs> Fintech
1: oh, <look>. Insiders? <laughs> burn, burn, burn.
0: <laughs> that was not intentional. Um, it's because there's an S on the end of it and I really wanted people to be aware of the S. Uh, I'm, I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm Ron Burgundy? <laughs> uh, if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes and check out 11FS.com. If you want to know more about the team that brought you this, we We do consulting stuff, too. Thanks for listening.
4: (laughs) That was great.
0: Awesome. (laughs)